The Lord brought to my mind a story that I had forgotten from quite a long time ago for me. Uh, it was a story of how I met one of my groomsmen. His name is Jeff. Um, and how Jeff and I became roommates. That's how our friendship began. And the extraordinary God-ordained circumstances of us becoming roommates. So I went to University of Maryland. And um, the way University of Maryland works is, you know, a lot of people live on dorms and a lot of people commute as well. But the dorm system was such that uh, where you lived depended on a lottery number. Your lottery number depended on your seniority. So basically, the seniors get the best housing, the freshmen get the worst housing, right? And so the only exception to that rule is you can get pulled into a particular room um, if, if someone asks you, and they don't question that whatsoever. And so like if you have a senior friend who has a great place, they can pull you into their place. So they had regular high-rise dorms at Maryland. They had what they called suites, which was essentially you know several rooms and then a common space. And then they had suites, where they called them apartments. Apartments, which are basically suites with rooms and a kitchen. So the apartment university housing was considered the best housing. And so you wanted to be able to get there and not eat the bad food at University of Maryland. It's not like the food here at University of Iowa. The, the food here is really good. The food at Maryland was not really good. So you would rather have your own kitchen. So going into my sophomore year, I had a friend in InterVarsity who had an apartment on campus, the apartment-style uh, university housing. And he was going to pull me into his apartment. So you have to go to this meeting, and they process all this paperwork. Uh, you, have, you might have a lottery number, you know, when you're trying to get one of these apartments. But uh, I found out on the day that this friend dropped out of school and that he was not going to be able to pull me into the apartment. But there were some other guys, so this, this friend I knew from InterVarsity, there were some other InterVarsity guys in this apartment as well. And I found out that I could still get pulled into the apartment, but now I had a double to myself. And so I could either just let the university assign me some random dude, or I could try to find a roommate. Now, it has to happen on this day at this meeting, and I'm like, ah! Like, everyone kind of has their housing arrangements already. This is pre-cell phone days. There's no blasting out of social media. Help, I need a roommate. It's just me in this meeting thinking, who can I ask to be my roommate so I don't get a random dude. Now I see across the room in this, this housing meeting, Jeff. Jeff I knew from my intro to politics class. We, to say I know him is a bit of a stretch. Uh, we have a bunch of head nods and hellos. That's the extent of our knowing each other. We had a mutual friend, Jen, from InterVarsity. Um, that, that was our connection. So I see Jeff, I walk over to him just to be friendly, and like, hey Jeff, what's up? What are you doing here? He's like, oh, I'm trying to figure out my housing. It's still very much up in the air. Okay, Jeff is basically a stranger. And I don't know why, I, I, honestly to this day, I just think it's the Lord's prompting. I said, well, do you want to live with me? I got, a, I got a, a spare place in my apartment. Now he's like, of course, whoa, apartment? Yes, absolutely, or whatever, I don't know. He, he said yes, so we became roommates. Jeff is, was, a, was an atheist or maybe agnostic. He loved to party. And so the, when we moved in together, there were, there were a lot of nights he'd come home and he's pretty drunk and he's, you know, we're having deep spiritual talks while he's in this drunken state. And, you know, I had opportunities to share my faith and give a reason for my faith. And, and there was one night he was like, you know, Didi, I want what you have. And at the moment I was like, I don't even know what he's referring to exactly. But then I kind of realized... 
he's talking about, you know, faith in God, joy, hope, love in, through my faith. And you could tell he was seeking. And there was these two other guys, InterVarsity guys that I lived with, and one of them was, and I, we were all trying to love him well. And um, there was one guy who was particularly evangelistic. And, and one day, through a conversation with his other guy, Jeff became a Christian and accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And so this is, this is the story of how Jeff became one of my best friends, one of my groomsmen, and he married this girl, Jen, as well, the mutual friend, which is pretty crazy. Um, and it's really a, a powerful reminder and testament of how love amongst just a couple of brothers in Christ and the love that we try to show him and invite him into in our apartment and in the wider end of varsity community drew him and opened him up to hear this gospel message that up to this day he really had rejected. And it brings us to really what today's passage is about. Today's passage is about loving one another as the body of Christ. And you heard it read earlier, but let me give just a little bit of context for this message um, as we dive into it. This message, I mean, Lorraine gave a little bit of context, which is great. And so this section, chapters 13 through 17 in John, in John, the Gospel of John, is what we call the farewell discourse. It's Jesus' last words to his disciples before he goes to the cross. It's four chapters in John. That's a lot of words to allocate just to the farewell discourse, to the last words of Jesus before he goes to the cross. And I want you just to stop for a moment to imagine if Jesus never went to the cross. Just try to imagine our world for a moment if Jesus never went to the cross. Let's just say he existed, he taught, whatever, had this following, but he never went to the cross. Can you imagine what our world would be like if that never happened? That's really hard to imagine. So much of the global world's history revolves around what Jesus did on the cross. You just try to remove that one act. It's hard to imagine. What would our history, what would our world be like if that was removed? So these words that he spoke right before he went to the cross to his disciples are important words. These are words that he's saying, I'm about to die. Please take heed of these words that I'm about to speak to you. And this was a, a common literary form in the ancient times. Great religious leaders often would give farewell discourses. It wasn't out of the ordinary. If they knew they were anticipating death, they would often gather their disciples or followers and give a farewell discourse. And often, as we see in John, it would contain these themes, these th themes of what the followers are to expect as coming, how they should behave in following, um, in following times, uh, a prayer for them as they prepare to face those things. And the Gospel of John is interesting as compared to the other Gospel accounts because it does focus on some things that the other accounts do not focus on, particularly in the farewell discourse. The other Gospels do talk, point to end times, and John really doesn't. John talks more about sending of the Holy Spirit that will fill the church and guide the church, that they will not be alone in the mission that God has given them. And John also focuses, not so much as other Gospels do, kind of these specific ethical things that the followers should do, but John gets to the core, to the substance of what it's about. Love. 
John talks a lot about love throughout his gospels and letters. And it is just as clear in his farewell discourse as well. So in our passage today, specifically just here, verses 31 to 35, as Loreen had said, Judas has just left the room. And Jesus sees this moment as the beginning of the end, so to speak. Or in the words here, the beginning of his glorification. And really, there are these three, three themes that are summarized here in verses 31 to 35 very succinctly and then expanded on in the next four chapters. And those themes are love, departure, glorification. Love, departure, glorification. I said that in the wrong, wrong order. Glorification, departure, love is the order in which it's stated here in these verses. And then in reverse order, John expands on those themes um, in subsequent chapters in John. So let's dive in to what, what John says specifically, what he records for us. So again, just first two verses here. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Jesus launches into this farewell discourse knowing that his betrayal has begun, knowing that his road to the cross is very clear now. And he begins by talking about this key theme of glorification, the glorification of the Father and the Son through what he's about to do. And here he, refer, he refers to himself as the Son of Man, which he does uh, you know, in other Gospels, and, and, and also in John specifically, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man 12 times. But this instance right here, talking about his glorification, is the last time he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now, this, this, this term, Son of Man, has this rich Old Testament background to it and attributes these divine and messianic qualities to himself as he references himself as the Son of Man. But at the same time, we understand it, it is closely tied in with the glorification of the Son of Man that will come. And when he says, now is the Son of Man glorified, another way to say is the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. Now, glory or glorification, I mean, it is what it sounds. We think of glory as exaltation, fame, to be known, to be lifted up. And so it is strange that he says it here. Now is the time for Jesus to enter into his glory. He just got betrayed. He's just about to die on the cross. And he's saying, now I will be glorified. Jesus uses glory to describe the death that he's about to go through. The humiliation that he's going to go through. And how the fulfillment of this death as prophesied was his glory. And one theologian says it this way, the cross would become the supreme glory of God because the Son would completely obey the will of the Father. So this exaltation comes because of his fulfilling of his death on the cross. But then what will come from that is also the resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven to return to his, his place with the Father in heaven. But we see here that it is humiliation that leads to exaltation. That there is glory in humility. It's what Jesus is saying to us. Jesus' death is glory for God because Jesus represents the fullness of God's love for mankind. 
He can glory in this death because he proves his love for mankind through this death, through this self-sacrificial love. Theologian John Calvin says, For in the cross of Christ, as in a splendid theater, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. And Jesus himself says, just a couple of chapters later, Greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, I don't know if you're all Marvel movie fans, but I'm going to reference a Marvel movie here. Um, There will be a spoiler alert a little bit later, but I'll make it as not spoiler as possible. Now, so in Avengers Affinity War, which is the one right before the one that just came out, Endgame, we find Thanos is the villain. And Thanos is trying to collect these things called Infinity Stones, and they're supposed to give him great power. And one of the stones he's trying to collect is called the Soul Stone. And he goes to this planet Vormir, and he brings his daughter, Gamora, with him. And when he gets to, whatever, this creepy guy who's in charge of the Soul Stone, the guy says, you have to sacrifice something you love in order to gain the stone. A soul for the Soul Stone. And so what we see happens in Infinity War in this particular scene is Thanos, theoretically it shows in the movie, with some grief, pushes his daughter Gamora down the cliff to gain the soul stone. Okay, this movie is really old, so if I gave that away for you, I'm sorry, but you should have watched it sooner. Um, And so he gets the soul stone, right, by sacrificing his daughter against her will, against her consent, just shoving her down the cliff uh, to her surprise. So I'm going to make this as not spoiler as possible. But in Avengers Endgame, what happens is, well, the movie Infinity War ends basically with Thanos winning. His goal is to cull the world's population. He, through the power of the Infinity Stones, kills half the world's population. And that's how the movie ends, which is really depressing if you're into these movies. You're like, what? You can't end like this? How long do I have to wait to the next one? Half the world is dead, including, including half the Avengers. So that's where Avengers Endgame begins. Half the world's population is dead. And the Avengers plan is, and actually I was really mad about this when it started, is they were going to travel back through time. I'm just so annoyed with time travel in these kind of movies. They're going to travel back through time and get all the Infinity Stones before Thanos can get the Infinity Stones to prevent him from doing this incredibly destructive act of killing everyone, not everyone, half the world's population. And so we repeat this scene um, of now the Avengers going to Vormir, the planet, to try to get the Soul Stone before Thanos can get it. Now I'm not going to say who, because that would be really spoiler. Two Avengers go to Vormir before Thanos can get there to try to get the Soul Stone. Now they face the same creepy guy who says, you have to sacrifice something you love, a soul for a Soul Stone. So the Avengers, because they're good guys, they're not pushing each other off the cliff. They're fighting each other in order to sacrifice themselves for the sake of gaining the Soul Stone. So eventually one of them manages to defeat their friend long enough to be able to jump off the cliff and gain the soul stone to reverse this incredibly destructive act of Thanos. Greater love has no one than this, 
than someone lay down his life for his friends. Now some would criticize Christianity as being a religion that centers itself around child sacrifice. They would say the Heavenly Father is like Thanos, just pushing his son off the cliff for his purposes. But the Heavenly Father is no Thanos. He does not push his son off the cliff without his son's consent to his surprise. The Christian faith doesn't teach that. The Christian faith teaches that the Son of God from all eternity past along with the Heavenly Father came up with the plan to save mankind. And the Son of God willingly, joyfully agreed to sacrifice himself for the sake of restoring mankind to God. The Avengers, that one Avenger, represents Jesus' willing sacrifice for the sake of others, out of love for others. The Heavenly Father didn't push his son off the cliff. The son of God jumped off the cliff himself out of love for this world. One soul for many souls. Jesus the Avenger who gladly, willingly, joyfully, bravely gave up his life for the sake of others to take the price of all the wrongs that we mankind have committed so that we can be restored into this perfect union with God, this relationship with God. Greater love has no, no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The humiliation of the Son of God is this humiliating death on the cross as a common thief for the sake of mankind. But it leads to the glory of God's self-sacrificial love for all of humanity. And it leads again to the power over sin and death through his resurrection. It leads to his ascension and glory at the right hand of God the Father. Humiliation leads to exaltation. And the whole process and vibe and tone is this humble love of Christ. He teaches us that in these simple words when he says it, it now is his time for glory as he goes to the cross. He continues to say this, little children, yet a little while I'm with you, you will seek me and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I won't linger along on this part, but he just makes clear that he's not sticking around. He's, he's preparing his disciples. He's equipping his disciples for what is to come, for the mission, the purpose that he is giving them. He's saying they can't come with him right now, but that he's going to send the Holy Spirit. He'll expand on that in later words in, in the farewell discourse. That he'll empower them to share this gospel message after he leaves and that they would share this gospel message to the ends of the world. And here, Jesus, though, doesn't talk about making disciples, really. He talks about love. John records for us the focus here in this farewell discourse, not about making disciples, but about how his disciples are to love. And so that brings us to verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The Apostle John was known in the ancient church for his concern 
for love. And Jerome tells this story of John in his extreme old age saying, whenever he was carried into the assembly, he would say, little children, love one another. And when his disciples got tired of this, they asked, Master, why do you always say this? And John answered, it is the Lord's command. If this alone be done, it is enough. Now in verse 34, we hear here Jesus saying that this, he's giving them a new commandment. Now it's not really new in the sense that we think of it. I mean, the, the Jewish faith has, has said all along that we should love God and love people and love one another. It's not new in the sense of different or recent. He means it new in the sense of fresh, as in the opposite of outworn. It's fresh in the sense that after Jesus' death and resurrection, the kind of love that his people would have with God is likened to the love of the Father to the Son. This is new and fresh. A love for one another that is as intimate as the love between the Father and the Son. But not only that, that they will be empowered through the Holy Spirit's presence in them to love one another. That they're not alone in loving one another. That they have the power of God to enable them to love one another. Yes, we are to love those outside the church, but yet Jesus focuses in on loving one another within the church. And the power of that witness to all those who might see us Christians interact with one another. He doesn't just say, love one another. He says, love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. And so again, we remember, how has Jesus loved us? Jesus has loved us by laying down his life for us. He has loved us with a humble, even humiliating love. A willingness to humiliate humiliate himself in order to love us. Are we willing to love one another to that extent? As in John's example here, Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, completely frowned upon in that time. Are we willing to humiliate ourselves for the sake of loving one another the way that Jesus does? Jesus calls his followers then and us now that our love for one another should include no rivalry, no jealousy, no jockeying for position with one another for God, no taking the highest positions out of pride, no gossiping about one one another, no looking out for just ourselves but not one another. Instead, we're to love as Jesus has loved us, to love one another in a self-sacrificial way. And so I ask us as a church, one ancient hope, How are we loving one another? How are we doing in responding to God's call, Jesus' call, his last words to his followers before his death? How are we loving one another? One of you in this room, anyone could find out, but I won't name this person right now. One of you in this room said on our church Facebook page, wrote a review for our church. It's always appreciated, by the way, when you write reviews, but... I don't like telling people to do it because it's crass. Um, But this person said this about us. A church, any church really, is all about the people who are involved. 
this is a congregation of caring, sincere, and deeply devoted Christians eager to engage with people in and out of the church. The people are warm, accepting, and loving, and really wanting to share Christ's love with the community around them. Now, this was not written like 10 years ago. So it's you. Like, this is about you. Like, this was recently written. And this was really encouraging for me to read as the pastor. And I pray for us as a congregation that we would continue to live up to this description. And yet we all know, we all know that we're fallen. We all know it is so easy to get busy with our lives, our work, our hobbies, our ambitions, and that it's easy to slip into neglecting loving one another. And so I remind us, let's continue to do that. Let's continue to love one another, inquire of one another, support one another, pray for one another, help one another, bear one another's burdens, to know what's going on in each other's lives so that we might come alongside each other in the ups and downs of life, to rejoice together, to weep together, that we might live out this one anothering that Christ calls us to. And we can do that. We can embody this love of one another because, again, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. We don't have to will ourselves into loving one another. We have to remember the oneness that we have with God, the oneness that we have with one another through faith in Christ. Then live it out. Live out that oneness through loving one another. The early church was known for its love for one another, and it was very prominent back then. Historians have recorded it for us. Tertullian reports that the pagans said of the Christians, see, they say, how they love one another, how they are ready even to die for one another. Dodd says this, love of one's neighbor is not an exclusively Christian virtue, but in our period, which was, he's talking about the second century AD to Constantine, early in the third century, the Christians appear to have practiced it much more effectively than any other group. There was something very prominent in that time where the Christians understood because of Jesus, because of the apostles, that loving one another required a death to oneself. And it was not easy for them to just rest on their laurels because of the persecution they faced. They knew that they had to die to themselves and love each other in a radical way. It was clearly a requirement as they followed the Lord Jesus. But it really didn't take long in the history of the Christian faith for that to change. When the Emperor Constantine legalized Christianity, it was sort of like it brought about an ease and a comfort for Christians that they began to forget, such that Chrysostom says this to his congregation in his sermon. There's nothing else that, this is 4th and 5th century, there's nothing else that causes the Greeks, that is the non-Christians, to stumble except that there is no love. We, we are the cause of their remaining in their era. Their own doctrines they have long condemned and in like manner they admire ours, but they are hindered by our mode of life. That makes me ask, what, 
How are we doing? How is the Christian church doing today? We live in very different circumstances than the early church in the first or second century, very different times from the fourth or fifth century. The church has grown incredibly, and we're in the 21st century. Do people see the love of Christians for one another and say, wow, that's different? I want to learn about this Jesus that they believe in. I've said this many times and I'll never tire of saying it, but the first time I, as an atheist, went and hung out with a bunch of Christians was at a Christian summer camp. And it was shocking to me. I was blown away by it. I couldn't comprehend what was going on. They were so loving, so accepting. It just I'd never experienced anything like it before. They were so joyful and so hopeful. And it was just like, I was not seemingly predisposed to be either of those things. And it just made me so curious. Who is this Jesus that they believe in? Sounds like a bunch of hooey, but something seems right about the way these followers live. And that was the beginning of my journey to coming to know God. It was the love of Christians for one another and for me when I was invited in to see, wow, there's something really good in what they believe in, this God they believe in. Is that what you see in our church? I'm sure everyone has a different answer. Do we see and experience love for one another? When a new person comes in the midst of us, do they see and experience love for one another and love for them when a non-Christian comes and is with us do they experience our love for one another and love for them the way we love one another is a vital life-giving component for ourselves for sure but Jesus says there is also a very great and vital purpose for that love for one another And that purpose is for a watching world to see that he is indeed the living and loving God. And we all know that inevitably, in some way, we will fall short of loving one another in the way that we have been called to. We get too busy. We get too distracted. We just want to take care of ourselves. It's too hard to bear the burdens of other people. I don't like the other people. Jesus says, love one another just as I have loved you sacrificially, unconditionally. Of course we have differences. Of course we annoy each other every now and then. Probably we're going to annoy each other more as we try to get into this building. But Jesus says, I have forgiven you for all the ways in which you've fallen short. All the ways in which you have not loved, neglected to love, chosen not to love. You are free. You are free to love. You are free to love one another because the weight of guilt has been taken from you and has been placed upon Christ's shoulders. We can love one another because we are empowered with the Holy Spirit to do so. Let us love one another in the way that Christ calls us to so that our community, so that our city will know that he is the living and loving God. 
Let us not forget the simple power of reaching out to others, to asking how others are doing, praying for others. They will know us by our love for one another. They will know Christ through our love for one another. Let us remember the power that we have in the Holy Spirit, the freedom that we have in the gospel, and let us love one another because Jesus has loved us first. Let's pray.